Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Monday, October 23rd, 2006. I'm Dr. Richard Savell. This is another one of our 2007 Congress Keynote Up Close podcasts in which we will interview keynote speakers presenting during the 36th Critical Care Congress in Orlando, Florida, February 17th through the 21st, 2006. Today we have Dr. Simon Finfer, who will be discussing the clinical role of albumin in the intensive care unit on Tuesday, February 20th, 2007, during Congress. Dr. Finfer is a senior staff specialist in intensive care at Royal North Shore Hospital of Sydney. He's an associate professor of medicine at the University of Sydney, and he's director of the Division of Critical Care and Trauma at the George Institute for International Health. Thank you so much, Dr. Finfer, for joining us today, all the way from Australia. Thank you. Um, I thought we'd begin by letting you talk a little bit about your personal background in critical care and maybe to help explain for the listeners a couple major topics such as the uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, Intensive Care Society Clinical Trials Group and maybe discuss a little bit the uh, George Institute if you'd like. Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, my, my personal background is that I, I'm uh, originally from England. I trained in London at the Westminster Medical School and University College London and Shortly after I um, qualified, decided I was going to pursue a, a career in uh, critical care medicine. And so thereafter, I trained in internal medicine and what we would have called anesthetics or you'd call anesthesiology um, with a view to doing critical care medicine. And I completed my training in London and in Sydney, and also spent a, a year doing a fellowship at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, which was uh, certainly, uh, I found, a very interesting year and, and one which um, helped me form my own views on how um, critical care units should be run and administered and, and views on developing a research program in critical care. So at, at the end of my training, I was, for two years, a... Uh, um, a, a consultant in uh, critical care in, at the Oxford Teaching Hospitals in England before I got uh, made an offer I couldn't refuse and came back to work in Australia at Royal North Shore Hospital um, under in the department run by, by Malcolm Fisher, who I'm sure would be known to uh, many people in critical care. I was fortunate in, in timing, really, that at, at that time which was 1993 to, through to 94, the 
Australia had a and New Zealand had an, a very well deserved I think reputation for clinical practice and intensive care for education and training and was just starting down the road of of trying to develop more of a, a clinical research program which which up to that point had, had really taken second place to to the um, issues of clinical care and really concentrating on on providing very highly coordinated and skilled clinical care to patients to really the next step which which was trying to generate a, a better evidence base for what we do in um, in our units as i said with 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 good luck and good timing um the year after i arrived uh, our annual scientific meeting was held in sydney and we held a very impromptu meeting a very informal meeting where people got together and and asked a fairly simple question which was do we want to form a clinical trials group and uh, the answer to that was yes and a, n- a number of interested parties got together and I guess in 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 the initial stages we had an enormous enthusiasm we had a a very coordinated um intensive care society in Anzix uh, and we had a lot of people uh, wanting to offer support but we we didn't have a great deal of expertise particularly in running clinical trials and um we started off initially we thought well we better do a clinical trial so so we did a a study that was run by Ronaldo Belomo um, on uh, the use of low-dose dopamine in patients with early renal dysfunction. And at the time, being a, a 324-patient study, we thought that was a, a reasonable-sized study, and uh, it was fortunately published in, in The Lancet, but it wasn't published until 2000, and I think that was one of the first lessons we learnt was that the the timelines of designing a, a clinical trial, putting together all the documentation and expertise and taking it through even even a relatively small trial like that through to completion and publication was was a lot longer than, than we'd originally anticipated. And at the same time, again, um, quite serendipitously, we had uh, David Tuxon from the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne took over running the ANZIC Foundation, which is our our fundraising arm. And as a part of that process and discussions, we we really focused in on developing a, a quite a centralised, coordinated research program which could serve the purpose of both answering important clinical questions and being an, an appropriate vehicle to go out and, and raise funds. And as a, a function of that, we decided to concentrate on four areas of research, which was acute lung injury and ARDS, um, severe sepsis, traumatic brain injury, and the prevention um, of critical illness and its complications. Our first really coordinated endeavours was to go out and collect data through inception cohort studies of what was actually happening now. And I, I think this was quite unique, at, certainly at the time, and maybe even is, that a, that a, a binational, in our case, organisation such as ANZIX would go out and say, OK, 
Let's identify four areas of interest. Let's find out how many patients we actually treat with those conditions in our intensive care units. Let's examine in detail how we're treating them and what the outcomes are. And as a result of that, we were there then much better positioned when we wanted to, to go out and raise funds and, and generate interest and design large clinical trials in that we had all this detailed background data, which, which was important for designing the trials, for, for working out our, our sample size uh, calculations, and really very important in trying to raise money, um, particularly in, in certainly in Australia and New Zealand, there wasn't a great deal of money going into clinical research um, at all, and certainly not into to intensive care or critical care research. So being able to go to governments and say, look, we've got this many patients with this condition and a third of them are dying or 40% of them are having bad outcomes if we're talking about brain injury, we were, we were a much more com convincing and, and credible body uh, to, to get money from government to, to do research. And by far and away, that's where the majority of our money has come from. Well, we've got a, got a lot of uh, very exciting topics to discuss, but one of the things I was thinking about while you were talking was uh, a group like the, the ARDSNED in the United States, uh, the individual hospitals apply to, to become part of the group. How is it determined which particular uh, hospitals or institutions are part of your uh, clinical trials group, and does that change every few years? Um, we're we're just we're a completely open group. Um, there's there's no criteria for for, for becoming a member. Um, we have units that contribute a, a small subscription that that support our, our executive officer and our central infrastructure. But some intensive care or critical care units, the the in public hospitals, their hospitals will say, we don't have the money, we want to spend the money on patients, so we're not going to pay this subscription for you or let you pay this subscription. And we we don't discriminate against those units. Um, we, we're, we're open to anyone. We have, through really our, our success in, in particularly conducting the, the SAFE study, um, now generated a level of interest where for individual studies we do run a um, site selection process very very similar to that run by pharmaceutical companies when conducting a study. We, we do now need to look um, when we have more, in, more units than want to, uh, want to be part of a study than we can accommodate and, and say, well, do you have the patient population that we need for this study? Do you have the resources? Um, we're conducting most of our studies with internet-based randomization and data management, so reliable, um, high-speed internet facilities in the clinical areas has, has become an important component of, of our studies. But um, if, if we look at beyond the SAFE study to the, the, the larger study we're conducting at the moment, which is the, the NICE SUGAR study, which we're doing in conjunction with the Canadian uh, Critical Care Trials Group and the Mayo Clinic and possibly 
we're in in discussion with one other U.S. centre about joining the study. In in that study, we knowingly took on several in, um, units from Australia who we expected to be low recruiters who had no experience of of clinical research, but we see it as part of our role not only to run the trials well and efficiently, but also to spread the expertise and the culture. Well, and plus it provides a degree of robustness into the research if it's got a, a real-world site that may not yeah, have, right? Yeah, I mean, we don't just want to do this in large academic centers, um, but so, so it is very broadly spread across both Australia and New Zealand. And did you want to talk for a second about what the George Institute for International Health was and its relationship? Yeah, um, again, when we set out to conduct the SAFE study, which was you know, a 7,000 patient, um, and we wanted to do a, a 7,000 patient blinded fluid resuscitation trial in, in, uh, in the critical um, care population, the, the response we got from most people was, that um, possibly we were slightly mad um, and that nobody had ever attempted anything on that scale. It was you know, 20 times the size of the largest trial we had done and that perhaps we were, were you know, not really in full control of our faculties to attempt that. And uh, having come from Oxford, um, I made contact with uh, Richard Pito in the... Um, MRC Clinical Trial Services Unit there, who's obviously one of the uh, most uh, well-known and internationally renowned clinical trialists, having done the, some, some of the early, you know, major multi-thousand thrombolysis trials, etc., and and sought his advice on how we might do this, and he directed me to um, what was then the uh, Institute for International Health, now the George Institute and Stephen McMahon and Robin Norton as the, the directors who who had worked with him and at the NIH and at other places and were in the process of setting up this institute um, in Sydney. And they really brought to us um, and our collaboration uh, a lot of large-scale trial experience None, none in the critical care area, um, and I think that's been one of the, you know, really superb um, components of our collaboration, is working with people who um, conduct large trials in other areas of medicine. Because often, when you're actually, and and virtually all of our group are full-time clinicians who do research um, out of love of research and a desire to generate a better evidence base for their clinical practice, um, where you, you tend to be colored by your own experiences and um, have a clinician's view of things. When we go to people at the George Institute who are epidemiologists or cardiologists or renal physicians or, or, or professional biostatisticians, they, they look at what you say in a a critical manner, and they're not um, encumbered with all, with all the biases that we have from day-to-day -day clinical practice and can often see the, the principles behind the, the issues that we wish to address. Critical care trials also have some challenges that are unique to critical care in terms of uh, issues of consent and, and on the difficulty of recruiting patients. Yeah, I mean, that 
that I, I think has been a again that's why one of the the most pleasurable things about it is it's a mutual learning experience, a mutual collaboration that we've introduced components like, for instance, we've we've been able to use delayed consent in many of our trials. Before we get into letting you talk a little bit about albumin, because we're sort of towards the end of the interview now, um, as we've learned uh, this week uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine is that even uh, setting up some uh, reasonable guidelines for the management of sepsis are still considered by some to be highly controversial. And I was just wondering if a group like yours that is now developing the infrastructure to be able to study some of these very important topics is planning to replicate uh, some of these uh, important results of other clinical trials, such as activated protein C or early goal-directed therapy or steroids and sepsis, um, again, because there is still so much uh, discussion about some of these landmark randomized trials? Well, I think you have to understand that Australia and New Zealand have, you know, have a combined population of, of about 24 million people. So we have to be realistic about what we can do. The, the good thing, the good development is the other groups that are that are working around the world. Obviously, the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group, very well established, has a fantastic program of research. Derek Angus has a, an NIH grant to look at early goal-directed therapy, and I think that's going to be a very important uh, thing to do, and we may well work with him on that, as, I, as I'm, I'm not sure how widely known it is he would like to to make that an international trial with maybe more than one funding source. Um, I think it's absolutely critical. You know, we're doing the, the, the nice sugar study, which is a, which is um, with the Canadians, which where we're seeking to to uh, randomise 6,100 patients to um, either intensive insulin therapy or a more conventional uh, target blood glucose. And currently, we are just at, just hit I think 2,600 patients in that trial, and that's obviously the when you have a, a single center trials such as Greet Vandenberg's uh, work in Leuven, um, we need to work out the generalizability of, of these um, trial results. I mean, there, there's a limit to what we can do, and, and I think part of working with the George Institute is, is to develop that the, we they um, have offices in Beijing and opening offices in India and, and collaborations all over the world is is that I, I certainly have a, a vision shared by many other people I know to, for us to be developing more global trials networks so that we can address these issues in as an efficient a manner as possible. A combination of breaking new ground while, on the other hand, keeping in the back of our collective minds that it is important to confirm the results of some of these important trials, right? Yeah, I, I think a lot of the, you know, you may may find that a lot of the issues that, that, that people explore may start off with an individual or a, a small group of enthusiasts doing a a relatively, not necessarily small trial, because Greet Vandenberg's trials are not small by any means, but but maybe a single centre trials or or trials that are, are more looking at efficacy, and that those trials should be. I, I feel very strongly that that we need to validate these outcomes. I mean, we now have the results of the Corticus study were presented in Barcelona. I wasn't at the meeting, but I've 
I've heard um, the results and I've seen some of the numbers and that calls into doubt the efficacy of, of steroids in the, in the treatment of, of septic shock, for instance. One of the issues with critical care is we've had very little you know, really good class one trial data to support the things we do. So when we get a, a positive trial, there's a natural um, reaction to, to think, hey, great, we've, we've finally shown that something works Let's go full steam ahead and use it. Um, I did want to give you an opportunity, if you did want to mention perhaps one or two key issues very briefly about albumin. Um, I, I believe most of our listeners will are, are obviously aware of your extraordinarily important results published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2004, the saline versus albumin fluid evaluation study. Um, and again, I, I think that albumin is, remains uh, less of an issue for resuscitation in the United States, but nevertheless, I think that uh, this is an important work. And uh, I know that there are also issues with albumin around uh, the management of ARDS, so Perhaps if you want to just uh, have a teaser or two about the kinds of things uh, the listeners can look forward to. As I said, the, the, it, w it was a particular issue in Australia, the safety of albumin, because the, 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 the government essentially owns the blood supply. Everyone gives blood voluntarily and, and accepts that it will be used for the benefit of the community. And the, um, therefore, the albumin which is fractionated from the blood and in, in some some would say is produced as a waste product really as as of a generation of blood fractionation um, is used widely. It's supplied to hospitals free of charge. We don't actually pay for albumin. It's it's cheaper for us to, to give our patients albumin than to just give them saline because we don't pay for it. It it comes from the a central contract for blood fractionation. Um, and the blood fractionation is driven by other things such as immunoglobulin. It's not driven by the production of albumin. So for us, it was a particular issue and, and the reason we tackled it. And I would think, you know, most people would be aware of the original Cochrane systematic review um, published in 1998 that suggested that giving albumin to critically ill people um, resulted in one death for every 17 people you gave it to. So clearly for us, with over 50,000 people a year receiving it, it was important we addressed that issue, which which we did, and and it had the happy side effect of of uh, getting us together with the George Institute and generating a, a really a, a clinical trials infrastructure and uh, a machine which which we're now using to run our additional trials. Um, I think in in terms of there's there's a bit more to come out of that. I think one of the most interesting. Um, components and very surprising because when we did the results meeting I stood up in front of the investigators we, we presented the results to the investigators in a in a closed confidential session before anyone else knew and I I asked them who thinks albumin will be better than saline overall and very few hands went up the one thing that the investigators thought that albumin would be superior to saline in was traumatic brain injury and and interestingly that was the one subgroup of, of patients in which it appeared that albumin was detrimental. And we've we've completed a follow-up study. I won't go into the results in detail. I'll talk about them at the Congress. A follow-up study where we followed all the patients with traumatic brain injury um, out to two years post-injury and done, ex had extended Glasgow outcome scores. So we've 
got neurological functional status rather than just mortality, which is a better outcome. And those results um, are currently being prepared for publication. I think they're, they have been presented at one or two meetings, and I'll present them in detail at the Congress. And we've also just last last um, uh, a week ago on Friday in the British Medical Journal, or the BMJ as it's now known, had the uh, our publication where we looked at whether there was a difference in the treatment effect according to patients' baseline serum albumin. So, i.e., if you came into the ICU um, very hypoalbuminemic, was there evidence that being resuscitated with albumin was better than saline? And and there doesn't seem to be a, a strong signal there, although possibly enough of a signal to in, encourage those who, who want to do a trial specifically looking at albumin supplementation. But I don't think the albumin story is in entirely um, over yet. Um, well, along those lines, wasn't there a signal that, that the, the other subgroup was the sepsis subgroup? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're we're currently working with our statisticians to try and get that data really as cleaned up for publication separately and present in, in much more detail. And it's interesting because there's a there's a group um, from the UK working in Africa um, and there are some publications by Catherine Maitland recently um, suggesting that albumin has a, a beneficial effect when used to resuscitate children with severe falciparin malaria. So in, in the that's why I, I don't think you know Richard Richard Smith, who was the editor of the BMJ when they published the original Cochrane meta-analysis, kindly uh, accepted my invitation to come out and do a, a very uh, uh, interactive, provocative, and entertaining session at the World Congress in Sydney in 2001, where he, where we discussed uh, why he published our, the album in paper, why, whether he should or shouldn't have, with Ian Roberts and Neil Sony on the platform. And one of his very telling comments at the time was, you know, the safe study won't answer all the questions. No study ever answers all the questions. And I think he's very right. So so there are still questions about albumin in sepsis. There's, there's Greg Martin's work out, albumin in, in ARDS. Does it have a, a beneficial effect there? I know Jean-Louis Vincent is pursuing um, the question of albumin supplementation. Um, and there was a recent uh, phase two paper on that in critical care medicine. So, so the story is by no means over. We, I think, we fairly convincingly answered the safety question in a heterogeneous population of patients. It may be we shouldn't be using albumin in, in in people with in the acute phase of people with traumatic brain injury. It may be that we should be using it more. Um, or at all in people with severe sepsis. And those issues, I think the sepsis one may be addressed in a future trial. I think the traumatic brain injury one, it will be very hard to put together an ethical argument for doing a trial of albumin when our um, two-year follow-up data is published. Lots more potential there. And I think it also illustrates um, and provides some evidence that Possibly the choice of resuscitation fluid does make a difference in different groups of patients, and uh, we're working at the moment trying to put together a, a fairly broad international collaboration to, to look at uh, the broader issues of fluid resuscitation in different groups of patients, which may or may not be important. And 
the the issue there is, is virtually everyone who goes into a critical care unit will receive fluid resuscitation. So even relatively small differences in outcome between the groups may translate into a lot of lives either lost or saved. We've been speaking today with Dr. Simon Finfer uh, on the topic of the clinical role of albumin in the critically ill patient, and he is one of the 2007 Congress keynote speakers. Thank you so much, Dr. Finfer, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. This concludes our podcast for Monday, October 23, 2006. Please visit the Society of Critical Care Medicine's website for more information on the 36th Critical Care Congress and look for another special podcast series featuring interviews with speakers from the event. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.